Hello and welcome to the 21st episode of Digitalization Tech Talks. I can't really believe that we've already come this far, but thanks to you, our listeners, for continuing to stick with us. We really appreciate it. My name is Jonas Nwinder, and as usual, I'll be your host along with my esteemed colleague, Don Mack. So Don, how are you doing today? Hi, you know, I'm doing great, and I'm very excited about today's episode number 21. And, and speaking of 21, it is an appropriate episode number as we'll be discussing what's very much a 21st century topic today. Yes, that's a very good point, Don. So let's get to today's episode. It is no secret that digitalization continues to be a hot topic across the process industries. And one area where digital process technologies are making a big impact is in process operations where it's now possible to implement plant models that contain deep process knowledge online, connected to real-time data on an operational facility. So these so-called digital applications can operate as a unit, plant, site, and even a multi-site level, where they can provide some significant new information to operations and maintenance that allows them to run at what we call always optimal condition. That's at least the theory, right, Don? Yeah, that's definitely true, Jonas. And in this episode, we're going to explore what's behind the theory. And since we think of the podcast series as a digitalization where the rubber meets the road, as we like to say, series, we'll also dig into how much of the theory is reality today. So let's get to our guest. His name is Costas Pantelidis, and he is the CEO of Siemens Processing Systems Engineering based in London, UK. Costas is also a professor of chemical engineering at Imperial College in London, and has long been known as a thought leader in the development and application of process modeling technologies. So welcome to the podcast, Costas. It's really nice to have you on. Thanks very much, Jonas. I'm really happy to be here to have a chance to talk about digitalization for process operations. Uh, it's an exciting time because the theory is rapidly becoming reality. So let's get to it. Costas, could you please share your definition of a digital application for operations with our listeners? It's, it's probably worth me taking a step back here, Jonas. Process modeling, actually mostly in the form of process simulation, has been a key tool in the process industries for many decades, probably going back to the early 60s. The models we're talking about are based on scientific and engineering knowledge of the underlying physics and chemistry, and nowadays biology, of course. And most of those applications have been offline, for example, for front-end engineering design or control system design and so on. Now, having said all this, Models are also being used for online real-time applications, deployed on the plant, connected to the automation system. For example, there are literally thousands of very successful deployments of model-based control, also known as advanced process control, out there. And as the name implies, they're based on process models. However, if you look at these models, they are very different to those used for offline applications. They are simple, usually linear models derived directly from plant data, not from fundamental physics. And one exception, I have to say, is where physics-based models are being used for real-time optimization. But this is mainly focused on a very small number of large-scale continuous plants, such as refineries or olefin plants. So bearing this background in mind, the kind of digital applications we're talking about here involve a number of characteristics. First of all, we have process models that incorporate deep physical knowledge, which translates into accurate predictions over a fairly wide range of operating conditions. And then you take these models, these detailed models, you take them online into real-time service within the plant's automation system. And there, you make use of real-time data combined with the models to perform a fairly wide range of tasks from 
monitoring, let's say, to open loop decision support, all the way to closed loop optimization and control. Now, having said this, the model will always be just an approximation of the real plant. But when you combine it with current plant data, which of course are also limited, not completely accurate, what you get is a very powerful combination that can generate valuable new information. And that's in a nutshell what I'm talking about when I when I talk about digital applications. Well, thanks, Costas. Um, relative to, you mentioned new information, what, what kind of new information would this include? If we start with what's probably the simplest case, you can use the model to reconcile the plant mass and energy balances, and that gives you an accurate up-to-date picture of your entire plant. It's not very exciting, it's been around for quite a while. But if we move on a bit, you can, using dynamic transient process models, you can generate in real time soft sense information for otherwise things you cannot measure in real time. For example, the product quality in a polymer plant, you can measure, you can measure it in a soft sense continuously without having to take samples and wait for the lab to come back with the results. So if you have this information, of course, you can control the production much more closely, significantly reduce off-spec product, and so on. If you look, this is what, I, what I've just mentioned is real time, second by second. But if you look at things on a slower time scale, you can also use the model to monitor plant parameters that drift over time. For example, if you have a catalytic process, the catalyst will typically deactivate over time. If you have an olefins cracking furnace, you will get coke deposition, which makes the performance of the cracking deteriorate. If you have a heat exchanger, you get fouling again. This is the kind of information that cannot really be measured directly, but it is very, very valuable for planning maintenance activities, such as, for example, catalyst deactivation or decoking the equipment or cleaning the heat exchanger and so on. So that is one aspect. Now, of course, if you do have an accurate, up-to-date model of the plant, that will be crucial for decision support. It will be an essential element. For example, with the model, you can allow the operators to do what the studies to determine the effects of possible alternative actions. Now, what I've just described is an advisory function. It's an open-loop function. The model makes suggestions, and it's up to the operators to decide whether to adopt them or not. But Usually, or very often, a much bigger benefit can come from deploying the model in a closed-loop mo uh, mode as part of the automation system of the plant. So in that case, you have the digital application running automatically 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. So for example, you would use this to optimize the operation from one hour to the next, taking account of the changing situation, for example, the availability of raw material may change, the demands for the product may change, equipment may go off stream because of various undesirable conditions. You have a system here which continually optimizes the operation of the plant. And you may even want to go a bit further to use this physics-based model to control the process on a minute-by-minute -minute or second-by-second -second basis. It will be important for some demanding processes for example, polymerization, or for complex batch operations, where the sort of conventional control technology that we have nowadays may not perform very well. So a whole range of possible applications. It sounds like some very, very impressive technical developments, I have to say, especially being able to measure the product quality continuously, as sometimes waiting for lab results can constitute a bottleneck in most industries. But how do these, let's say, technical benefits then translate into financial benefits? Is indeed a very good question. Some of the benefits, say, when you have optimization, are pretty obvious. Now, the fortunate thing is that we now have some real data to back them up. 
Imagine being able to run the plant in an optimal way every day of the week, every hour of the day, even if things around you are constantly changing. Even if you're talking about improving the economics by only a few hundred dollars an hour, if you do the sums, it adds up to millions of dollars over a year for any typical plant. Now, if you go to something more sophisticated, for example, or more complex, like an ethylene or a polymer plant, our experience is that you're really talking about tens of millions of dollars, something of the order of one to two million dollars a, a month. Recently, we're beginning to see examples where the technology is applied beyond the single plant level. It is applied to sort of integrated production systems, which involve multiple, say, a dozen plants, all being optimized together as a single entity. In such cases, and it's only early days, I should say, the benefits can run into hundreds of millions of dollars a year. It sounds like a huge number, and it is, but it's not actually surprising when you think of the huge material and money flows in, in these large systems. There's a lot of financial benefit, and as I said, we do have the evidence now for this. Now, it's not just money, though. I mean, if you consider that running the plant more efficiently usually means you're saving energy per unit product, that means you're also reducing CO2 emissions, greenhouse gases, at the same time. And it's one of the characteristics of this technology that you can incorporate sustainability considerations and criteria and constraints within the overall optimization framework. For example, to reduce solvent losses in pharmaceutical production or any general life cycle analysis aspect. Considering all this, why now? What's happened to make all of this applicable today? Many of the technology elements you're referring to have been around in the past, some for a long time even. And you mentioned that some of them have been around for, for decades, in, in fact. This is indeed a, an excellent point, and sometimes we wonder about this ourselves. It seems that it is accumulation, the gradual accumulation of many developments over the years that have made this possible. And if we look at the last, let's say, five years, what we're seeing is the combined impact of recent developments in three key enabling technologies in data, in computation, and in algorithms. Starting with data, obviously we have a lot more data being collected now, being archived, being with much wider range, high quality, especially when it comes to, for example, composition measurements. And all this data is much more easily accessible by computer programs. We can write applications which can actually access a lot of information from around the plant or indeed a combination of plants. The next area is computation. We really have much more computing power and some of the things I'm talking about do require a lot of computing power. We have much more flexibility about where we run things. We can run things on an industrial PC inside the control room or we can run this in edge technology or the cloud and so on. And again, that is beginning to have a big impact. And the third and final area I mentioned is algorithms. Definitely, we have many advances in fundamental solution algorithms. You know, the way we solve all these optimization problems using a combination of not just numerical techniques, but numerical and symbolic computation. And of course, in combining these more traditional mathematical technology with new technologies, such as machine learning, AI, surrogate modeling, and so on. Most of the key ingredients now seem to be in place at the right level of development. And the other thing we should not be underestimated is that all these advances are coupled with more sophisticated software engineering that is capable of delivering the sort of reliability, the resilience that perhaps was lacking in earlier years. So it is, it is this combination of technology push, as it were, but it's not just technology push. If you look around at what's been happening in the industry in recent years, there's been an evolving, let's call it digitalization mindset, especially in some of the uh, more innovative and progressive companies. 
And of course, given the additional impact and uh, motivation that comes from all the recent upheavals in global health, global energy, and so on, people are actively seeking such solutions, and they have the budgets to match. Overall, looking at the technology supply and the demand, you have the sort of circumstances where this kind of technology can flourish. That's, that's my, uh, my assessment of what's going on. That's a very, very interesting assessment, Costas. Thank you very much for those details. There's just one thing that I'm still trying to wrap my head around now, and that's how, how this all works. How do you make all these enabling technologies work together in tandem to enable this high fidelity process modeling? Could you explain that in a little bit more detail? Yes, of course. You need to start with a model. They're all model-based technologies. So the first thing you need to do is to build a model that captures what you know the knowledge, the deep process knowledge you have about your process, mainly in terms of the underlying physics and chemistry. And increasingly, I should say, these mathematical models are already available because they've been constructed for digital process design. Indeed, one of our core focuses at Siemens Process Engineering is to encourage the application of models across the process lifecycle from fundamental R&D to engineering design all the way to operations, not only to maximize benefits, but to maximize the return on the investment it takes to build these models. Now, building models is, is one thing. Making sure that these models actually represent reality is quite another. One key next step after you build the basic model is to validate it against real-time, real-life data. And this data could come from the, from the lab, where you're looking at the performance of your catalyst. Then it comes from the pilot plant, where perhaps you're looking at the performance of a new kind of equipment, processing equipment, or, or of course they can come from the from the plant itself. You need to do this to ensure that the model has the required degree of predictive accuracy. One of the biggest advances in recent years has been in the range and the scope of technology that is used for this process of model validation. All the way, we're now in a situation where we can actually quantify the accuracy of the model's predictions. We, we don't just say, it's accurate or it's not accurate, say it can predict the yield within 0.1%. And also we can quantify the risk that we'll be taking if we base any decision on a model which fundamentally cannot be 100% accurate. Having gone through this process, we now have an accurate and validated model, a digital process twin, if you, if you like. And this is what you need to support the different kinds of computation that I mentioned earlier, the monitoring, the optimization, the control, and so on. In fact, one of these computations that you perform online may be concerned with keeping the model up to date. As the behavior of the plant changes over time, for example, as your catalyst degrades, the model needs to be kept up to date, and this has to be done automatically. So we're now in a situation where we have models that are quite accurate to start with, and they continue being calibrated and self-tuned automatically throughout their lifetime. So how is the execution carried out then? Is that a more of a manual process or is it, is it as simple as, let's say, scheduling it once and for all and then make changes as needed? Yes, again, it's a very good question. We have we have the model, but taking this model on online requires some work to be done. For example, you have a model which is just mathematical entity, but then you need to, to map the key variables, the important variables from this model to real-world data and decide what to do if you need some inputs, some external inputs, some external data, which become temporarily unavailable or they're playing wrong. And you also need to connect the model to external data servers like the um, plan DCS or the plan historian, but also other sources of data. For example, in doing optimization, a lot of the information is commercial information in terms of product demands or 
raw material availabilities. So you need to be able to connect to databases or web services for prices and so on, or through dashboards. It is a lot of effort to, a non-negligible at least, a non-negligible amount of effort to perform this configuration. And after that comes a lot of testing. Usually what you would do is you would take historical plan data, in some cases planning several months or even a year of operation, and you need to perform extensive testing to make sure that this application performs well under all circumstances. It's particularly important, of course, if you're going to run this in closed loop, where the application actually affects directly the operation of the plant. Overall, a non-negligible amount, I have to say, of upfront work. The good news is that recently we have seen the emergence of what so-called general digital applications platforms. These are sophisticated pieces of software which support all this activity for a wide spectrum of applications. And once you go past this initial stage, these same platforms take over the execution of the applications. They do this in a resilient way, which doesn't kill over the moment something happens. They schedule all the necessary computations and communications in real time. They deal with any unexpected failure and so on. As I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of software engineering which backs the fundamental physics and mathematics technology. The main point here is that all this has really come a long way from the rather sort of ad hoc pieces of software that we used to rely on in the past, which if you think about this just as well, given the sort of safety, financial, environmental, other considerations at stake when you're running billion dollar assets. Well, thanks, Costas. As a company's going through this process, what, what are some challenges that they might run into? Is, it, is this something that can be done on any process at any plant? Well, yes, I mean, there are several challenges that are worth mentioning. First of all, a lot depends on the existence or otherwise of a reasonably accurate model and the nature of the process. Does the science and the available data allow you to characterize the physics to the required degree? If the science is incomplete, it may need to be complemented by combined with some elements which are derived directly from data by machine learning, for example. Effectively, what you're trying to do is you're trying to patch the gaps in the fundamental knowledge with bits derived by machine learning, and you end up with a hybrid sort of physics-based data-driven model. Getting the right model is a challenge. It's not something which could be underestimated. Now, another big challenge relates to the scale of the calculation that needs to be done. It needs to be done online, it needs to be done in real time. Can you actually solve the maths in the required time? What you have to bear in mind is that some of the models you're talking about here contain many hundreds of thousands, sometimes well over a million equations and variables. And you're trying to solve these models, not just to solve them, but you're trying to do some kind of optimization calculation with these, which may involve several hundreds of optimization decisions, many of which are discrete, binary, switch this equipment on or off and so on, which adds a combinatorial element. The computation itself is a challenge, and that's why, of course, one of the reasons why this technology is only becoming really feasible now. In the context of computation, one of the big advances in recent years is our ability to apply machine learning to these huge models to generate much more compact surrogate models, small models which are more amenable to real-time computation but which aim to match the important features of the full model. This again has its own challenges. How do you ensure that the solution you get, you're only solving the surrogate model, is the solution you get still valid with respect to the original detailed model? This is not a theoretical consideration. If, for example, you're not capturing the constraints of the process correctly, you may end up with solutions that fail to satisfy some important process constraints, which frankly isn't much use to anybody. 
And then, of course, on a more practical level, there are always questions of instrumentation, of data. Can we get the measurements that we need from the plan to perform, say, a salt sensing or a conciliation calculation? There are challenges. Progress, though, has been achieved in addressing this, and that's why we're seeing these now practical deployment of these applications on, on, at scale. You mentioned data-driven models. There's obviously been lots of interest in, in machine learning and artificial intelligence the last few years. Do you see these technologies as a viable technology? I think many people did see this as viable technology at one point. Probably some people still do. Personally, I see these technologies as complementary. If we take a step back, one way or another, what you need is a faithful purpose model. Something that can quantify the effects of the decisions at your disposal and any external factors on the process KPIs, key performance indicators, within the accuracy required by the business objectives. On the surface, a data-driven model is easier to derive. You just get some plant data. Nowadays, you can get gigabytes of plant data and apply machine learning to it. The problem arises if the information contained in this data is lacking. And we shouldn't really confuse data with information. You may have months or years worth of data from the plant, but if you look at, for example, in most continuous plants, the number of distinct operating points containing this data is very small, like well, well under 10. In fact, one could, one could argue that the main job of the plant manager is to keep the plant operating nicely at those few points. That's quite a deliberate effect, as it were. You would find it challenging to bring any reliable model using any technique based on so few data points. And even if you manage to build a model, the predictions might be unreliable outside the range of the original data. For this reason, our preference has been for a hybrid approach. Inject as much physical knowledge as you practically can, and then patch the any remaining gaps using machine learning. To give a very concrete and very simple example as well, there's nothing complicated about a physics-based model of a heat exchanger. Anybody can write a physics-based model of a heat exchanger. But within this physical framework, we may still want to use the data-driven element to provide a more reliable estimation of the heat transfer coefficient, especially if there's significant fouling in the equipment. The two approaches are complementary, and to make progress, we really need to continue seeing them as such, not as rival. Well, thanks, Gostas. Another question would be around implementation. From an implementation standpoint, how long does it take to do a project like this? And, and if you also think in terms of resources and funding required on the company side, what would be involved? Yeah, so it's difficult to be completely general. A lot of it depends on the existence or ability to, to get the process model. Once a validated model is available, in the way I mentioned before, it's probably a three to nine month staged project involving implementation of the plan, factory acceptance tests, site acceptance tests, and so on. In terms of the customer investment, obviously the customer needs to be closely involved in the project at all stages to take real ownership at sort of management and engineering level. Other than that, there is not usually a significant investment of resources on the customer side. In, in terms of capital investment, that's probably the beauty of these digital applications. Most of them require very little additional capital investment. In fact, the, the main purpose is how to make the most out of existing assets. So beyond some IT equipment instrumentation, maybe a couple more sensors, the capital investment is quite limited. What would be the first step someone would want to take if they'd want to implement such a digital application? We always think of technical challenges and technical uh, problems that need to be solved. But actually, the, the first step in our experience, which goes back 
few decades. Should be to always to establish some very clear business objectives and expectations. Like what problem are we trying to address here? What problem are we trying to solve at the plan level? And what benefits are we expecting? And these needs to be quantitative. It's not enough to say, well, we need to increase product yield. No, we need to increase product yield by half a percent. This is, this is the scale of our objective and our ambition. And what kind of payback period, if we do a project, what kind of payback, payback period will we accept? Presumably, the project will propose some changes to the way you run things. What are we, how much are we willing to change the current operating practices to, to achieve this benefit? All these digital applications, in the end, are built for a purpose and for a set of users. Who are the users? Are we talking about the plan operators? Are we talking about the plan engineers? Are we talking about the business planning department? All of these are very important questions. Now, once we have clarity on this, and only once we have clarity on this, we can move on to more technical aspects, like what degree of precision of model predictions would be required to achieve the business objective. So if you take my example before, if our ambition is to increase product yield by half a percent, our model would need to be accurate well within this limit. And that poses certain requirements later on. So in particular, what, what degree of physical detail would we need to achieve this precision? Do we understand our catalyst kinetics within this precision? If not, do we at least have the experimental capability in the lab to get reliable kinetics? Or perhaps can we patch this gap using data-driven elements? And then when you take this thing online, what plan measurements are we going to require anyway? These are the very preliminary questions that one needs to pose and answer. I know they all sound very obvious, but they are crucial to the success of the project, and they need to really be answered before we embark on any detailed technical work. Thank you so much, Costas, for detailed explanation of process modeling in the process industries. It certainly seems like to me that this technology can provide a lot of benefits, a lot of value to companies, as long as they employ it in the right place and for the right processes. Do you have any last thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with? First of all, let me thank you and Don for inviting me to be part of this podcast. I guess my last comment would be that this technology is now mature. Okay, One of the challenges that people face in Digital transformation is where to start and how to gain benefits now, not in some mythical digital future, let's say. Most of the digital applications we talked about here can be applied now on a plant, on a time scale of months. I mean, that's the first point. Once the surveys, they can keep running reliably for years. And this is something which was, was really problematic in the past. It was sort of common knowledge or a common joke in the industry that most of these things were switched off the moment the team deploying them walked out of the plant. This has changed quite radically. We now have applications which have been running every few minutes for the last uh, three, four, five years. They also pay, pay back for themselves quite quickly in many cases within the first few months. And by the same token, it is a low investment way to take a meaningful step towards sustainability, towards reducing greenhouse gas emissions in a fairly short time scale. Thank you very much for that final comment, Costas, and thanks again for being on the show. It was really great having you on. And that brings us to the end of today's episode of Digitalization Tech Talks. As always, if you have any questions about the topic, feel free to email Costas directly. Yeah, we will add his email address in the show notes. And Don and I are, of course, always open to your comments, your thoughts or feedback on the show, all the topics. And you can also find our contact information in the show notes. And we'd love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out. 
If you liked what you heard today, please help spread the word. You can rate the show in whatever platform you're using to listen to the podcast. And of course, make sure to subscribe so that you're in the loop when new episodes are released in the future. And remember, that's every last Thursday of the month. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Digitalization Tech Talks.